Volume One, Chapter Four A, of the Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Volume One, Chapter Four A. Is there such a feeling as love at first sight? And if there be, in what does its nature differ from love founded in long observation and slow growth? Perhaps its effects are not so permanent, but they are, while they last, as violent and intense. We walk the pathless mazes of society, vacant of joy, till we hold this clue, leading us through that labyrinth to paradise. Our nature, dim, like to an unlighted torch, sleeps in formless blank till the fire attain it. This life of life, this light to moon, and glory to the sun. What does it matter whether the fire be struck from flint and steel, nourished with care into a flame, slowly communicated to the dark wick, or whether swiftly the radiant power of light and warmth passes from a kindred power, and shines at once the beacon and the hope? In the deepest fountain of my heart the pulses were stirred. Around, above, beneath, the clinging memory as a cloak enwrapped me. In no one moment of coming time did I feel as I had done in time gone by. The spirit of Idris hovered in the air I breathed. Her eyes were ever and forever bent on mine. Her remembered smile blinded my faint gaze, and caused me to walk as one, not in eclipse, not in darkness and vacancy, but in a new and brilliant light, too novel, too dazzling for my human senses. On every leaf, on every small division of the universe, as on the hyacinth it is engraved, was imprinted the talisman of my existence. She lives, she is. I had not time yet to analyse my feeling, to take myself to task. And leash in the tameless passion. All was one idea, one feeling, one knowledge. It was my life. But the die was cast. Raymond would marry Idris. The marriage bells rung in my ears. I heard the nation's gratulation which followed the union. The ambitious noble uprose with swift eagle flight, from the lowly ground to regal supremacy, and the love of Idris. Yet not so. She did not love him. She had called me her friend. She had smiled on me. To me, she had entrusted her heart's dearest hope—the welfare of Adrian. This reflection thawed my congealing blood, and again the tide of life and love flowed impetuously onward. Again to ebb as my busy thoughts changed. The debate had ended at three in the morning. My soul was in tumults. I traversed the streets with eager rapidity. Truly, I was mad that night. Love, which I have named a giant from its birth, wrestled with despair. My heart, the field of combat, was wounded by the iron heel of the one, watered by the gush of tears of the other. Day, hateful to me, dawned. I retreated to my lodgings. I threw myself on a couch. I slept. Was it sleep? For thought was still alive, love and despair struggled still, and I writhed with unendurable pain. 
I awoke half stupefied. I felt a heavy oppression on me, but knew not whereof. I entered, as it were, the council chamber of my brain, and questioned the various ministers of thought therein assembled. Too soon I remembered all. Too soon my limbs quivered beneath the tormenting power. Soon, too soon, I knew myself a slave. Suddenly unannounced, Lord Raymond entered my apartment. He came in gaily, singing the Tyrolese song of liberty, noticed me with a gracious nod, and threw himself on a sofa opposite the copy of a bust of the Apollo Belvedere. After one or two trivial remarks, to which I sullenly replied, he suddenly cried, looking at the bust, "'I am called like that, Victor. Not a bad idea. The head will serve for my new coinage, and be an omen to all dutiful subjects of my future success.' He said this in his most gay, yet benevolent manner, and smiled, not disdainfully, but in playful mockery of himself. Then his countenance suddenly darkened, and in that shrill tone peculiar to himself, he cried, "'I fought a good battle last night. Higher conquest the plains of Greece never saw me achieve. Now I am the first man in the state, burthen of every ballad, and object of old women's mumbled devotions. What are your meditations? You, who fancy that you can read the human soul, as your native lake reads each crevice and folding of its surrounding hills, see what you think of me, king expectant.' "'Angel or devil? Which?' "'This ironical tone was discord to my bursting over boiling heart. "'I was nettled by his insolence, and replied with bitterness. "'There is a spirit, neither angel or devil, damned to limbo merely. "'I saw his cheeks become pale, and his lips whiten and quiver. "'His anger served but to enkindle mine, "'and I answered with a determined look his eyes which glared on me. Suddenly they were withdrawn, cast down. A tear, I thought, wetted the dark lashes. I was softened, and, with involuntary emotion, added, "'Not that you are such, my dear lord.' I paused, even awed by the agitation he evinced. "'Yes,' he said at length, rising and biting his lip, as he strove to curb his passion. "'Such am I. You do not know me, Verney.' "'Neither you, nor our audience of last night, "'nor does universal England know aught of me. "'I stand here, it would seem, an elected king. "'This hand about to grasp a sceptre. "'These brows feel in each nerve the coming diadem. "'I appear to have strength, power, victory, "'standing as a dome-supporting column stands. "'And I am... a reed. "'I have ambition, and that attains its aim.' My nightly dreams are realised, my waking hopes fulfilled. A kingdom awaits my acceptance, my enemies are overthrown. But here, he struck his heart with violence, here is the rebel, here the stumbling lock, this overruling heart which I may drain of its living blood. But, while one fluttering pulsation remains, I am its slave." He spoke with a broken voice, then bowed his head, and, hiding his face in his hands, wept. I was still smarting from my own disappointment. Yet this scene oppressed me even to terror. Nor could I interrupt his access of passion. It subsided at length, 
and, throwing himself on the couch, he remained silent and motionless, except that his changeful features showed a strong internal conflict. At last he rose, and said in his usual tone of voice, "'The time grows on us, Fanny. I must away. Let me not forget my chief errand here. Will you accompany me to Windsor to-morrow? You will not be dishonoured by my society.' "'And as this is probably the last service or disservice you can do me, "'will you grant my request?' "'He held out his hand with almost a bashful air. "'Swiftly I thought, "'Yes, I will witness the last scene of the drama, "'besides which his mien conquered me, "'and an affectionate sentiment towards him again filled my heart. "'I bade him command me. "'Aye, that I will,' said he gaily. "'That's my cue now.' "'Be with me to-morrow morning by seven. "'Be secret and faithful, "'and you shall be groom of the stole ere long.' "'So saying, he hastened away, "'vaulted on his horse, "'and, with a gesture, "'as if he gave me his hand to kiss, "'bade me another laughing adieu. "'Left to myself, "'I strove with painful intensity "'to divine the motion of his request "'and foresee the events of the coming day.' The hours passed on unperceived. My head ached with thought. The nerves seemed teeming with overfull fraught. I clasped my burning brow, as if my fevered hand could medicine its pain. I was punctual to the appointed hour on the following day, and found Lord Raymond waiting for me. We got into his carriage and proceeded towards Windsor. I had tutored myself, and was resolved by no outward sign to disclose my internal agitation. "'What a mistake Ryland made,' said Raymond, "'when he thought to overpower me the other night. "'He spoke well, very well. "'Such an harangue would have succeeded "'better addressed to me singly "'than to the fools and maids assembled yonder. "'Had I been alone, "'I should have listened to him with a wish to hear reason. "'But when he endeavoured to vanquish me in my own territory, "'with my own weapons, "'he put me on my mettle, "'and the event was such as all might have expected.' I smiled incredulously and replied, "'I am of Ryland's way of thinking, "'and will, if you please, repeat all his arguments. "'We shall see how far you will be induced by them, "'to change the royal for the patriotic style.' "'The repetition would be useless,' said Raymond, "'since I will remember them, "'and have many others self-suggested, "'which speak with unanswerable persuasion.' "'He did not explain himself, "'nor did I make any remark on his reply.' Our silence endured for some miles, till the country with open fields, or shady woods and parks, presented pleasant objects to our view. After some observations on the scenery and seats, Raymond said, "'Philosophers have called man a microcosm of nature, and find a reflection in the internal mind for all this machinery visible at work around us. This theory has often been a source of amusement to me, and many an idle hour have I spent "'exercising my ingenuity in finding resemblances. "'Does not Lord Bacon say that "'the falling from a discord to a concord, "'which maketh great sweetness in music, "'hath an agreement with the affections, "'which are reintegrated to the better after some dislikes? "'What a sea is the tide of passion, "'whose fountains are in our own nature? "'Our virtues are the quicksands, "'which show themselves at calm and low water.' But let the waves arise, and the winds buffet them, 
and the poor devil, whose hope was in their durability, finds them sink from under him. The fashions of the world, its exigencies, educations, and pursuits, are winds to drive our wills, like clouds or one way. But let a thunderstorm arise in the shape of love, hate, or ambition, and the rat goes backward, stemming the opposing air in triumph. Yes, replied I, nature always presents to our eyes the appearance of a patient, while there is an active principle in man which is capable of ruling fortune, and at least of tacking against the gale, till it in some mode conquers it. There is more of what is specious than is true in your distinction, said my companion. Did we form ourselves, choosing our dispositions and our powers? I find myself for one, as a stringed instrument with cords and stops, but I have no power to turn the pegs, or pitch my thoughts to a higher or lower key. Other men, I observed, may be better musicians. I talk not of others but myself, replied Raymond, and I am as fair an example to go by as another. I cannot set my heart to a particular tune, or run voluntary changes on my will. We are born, we choose neither our parents nor our station, we are educated by others, or by the world's circumstance, and this cultivation, mingling with our own innate disposition, is the soil in which our desires, passions, and motives grow. There is much truth in what you say, said I, and yet no man ever acts upon this theory, who, when he makes a choice, says, Thus I choose, because I am necessitated. Does he not on the contrary feel a freedom of will within him, which, though you may call it fallacious, still actuates him as he decides? Exactly so, replied Raymond, another link of the breakless chain. Were I now to commit an act which would annihilate my hopes, and pluck the regal garment from my mortal limbs, to clothe them in ordinary weeds, would this, think you, be an act of free will on my part? As we talked thus, I perceived that we were not going the ordinary road to Windsor, but through Englefield Green, towards Bishopgate Heath. I began to define that Adris was not the object of our journey, but that I was brought to witness the scene that was to decide the fate of Raymond, and, of course, Perdita. Raymond had evidently facilitated during his journey, and his resolution was marked in every gesture as we entered Perdita's cottage. I watched him curiously, determined that, if this hesitation should continue, I would assist Perdita to overcome herself, and teach her to disdain the wavering love of him, who balanced between the possession of a crown and of her, whose excellent and affection transcended the worth of a kingdom. We found her in her flower-adorned alcove. She was reading the newspaper report of the debate in Parliament, that apparently doomed her to hopelessness. That heart-sinking feeling was painted in her sunk eyes and spiritless attitude. A cloud was on her beauty, and frequent sighs were tokens of her distress. This sight had an instantaneous effect on Raymond. His eyes beamed with tenderness, and remorse clothed his manners with earnestness and truth. He sat beside her, and, taking the paper from her hand, said, "'Not a word more shall my sweet Perdita read of this contention of madmen and fools. 
I must not permit you to be acquainted with the extent of my delusion, lest you despise me. Although, believe me, a wish to appear before you, not vanquished, but as a conqueror, inspired me during my wordy war. Perdita looked at him like one amazed. Her expressive countenance shone for a moment with tenderness. To see him only was her happiness. But a bitter thought swiftly shadowed her joy. She bent her eyes on the ground, endeavouring to master the passion of tears that threatened to overwhelm her. Raymond continued, "'I will not act a part with you, dear girl, or appear other than what I am, weak and unworthy, more fit to excite your disdain than your love. Yet you do love me. I feel and know that you do, and thence I draw my most cherished hopes.' If pride guided you, or even reason, you might well reject me. Do so. If your high heart, incapable of my infirmity of purpose, refuses to bend to the lowness of mine, turn from me if you will, if you can. If your whole soul does not urge you to forgive me, if your entire heart does not open wide its door to admit me to its very centre, forsake me, never speak to me again. I, though sinning against you almost beyond remission, I also am proud. There must be no reserve in your pardon, no drawback to the gift of your affection. Perdita looked down, confused yet pleased. My presence embarrassed her, so that she dared not turn to meet her lover's eye, or trust her voice to assure him of her affection. While a blush mantled her cheek, and her disconsolate air was exchanged for one expressive of deep-felt joy. Raymond encircled her waist with his arm, and continued, "'I do not deny that I have balanced between you and the highest hope that mortal man can entertain. But I do so no longer. Take me. Mould me to your will. Possess my heart and soul to all eternity. If you refuse to contribute to my happiness, I quit England to-night, and will never set foot in it again.' "'Lionel, you hear? Witness for me. Persuade your sister to forgive the injury I have done her. Persuade her to be mine.' "'There needs be no persuasion,' said the blushing Perdita. "'Except your own dear promises, and my ready heart, which whispers to me that they are true.' That same evening we all three walked together in the forest, and, with the garrulity which happiness inspires, they detailed to me the history of their loves. It was pleasant to see the haughty Raymond and reserved Perdita changed through happy love into prattling, playful children, both losing their characteristic dignity in the fullness of mutual contentment. A night or two ago, Lord Raymond, with a brow of care and a heart oppressed with thought, bent all his energies to silence or persuade to the legislators of England the deceptor was not too weighty for his hand, while visions of dominion, war, and triumph floated before him. Now, frolicsome as a lively boy sporting under his mother's approving eye, the hopes of his ambition were complete, when he pressed the small fair hand of Perdita to his lips, while she, radiant with delight, looked on the still pool, not truly admiring herself, but drinking in with rapture the reflection there made of the form of herself and her lover, "'shown for the first time in dear conjunction. "'I rambled away from them. "'If the rapture of assured sympathy was theirs, "'I enjoyed that of restored hope. 
I looked on the regal towers of Windsor. High is the wall, and strong the barrier that separate me from my star of beauty. But not impassable. She will not be his. A few more years dwell in thy native garden, sweet flower, till I by toil and time acquire a right to gather thee. Despair not, nor bid me despair. What must I do now? First I must seek Adrian, and restore him to her. Patience, gentleness, and untired affection shall recall him, if it be true, as Raymond says, that he is mad. Energy and courage shall rescue him, if he be unjustly imprisoned. After the lovers again joined me, we supped together in the alcove. Truly it was a fairy supper, for though the air was perfumed by the scent of fruits and wine, we none of us either ate or drank. Even the beauty of the night was unobserved. Their ecstasy could not be increased by outward objects, and I was wrapped in reverie. At about midnight Raymond and I took leave of my sister to return to town. He was all gaiety, scraps of songs fell from his lips. Every thought of his mind, every object about us, gleamed under the sunshine of his mirth. He accused me of melancholy, of ill-humour and envy. "'Not so,' said I, "'though I confess that my thoughts are not occupied as pleasantly as yours are. "'You promised to facilitate my visit to Adrian. "'I conjure you to perform your promise. "'I cannot linger here. "'I long to soothe, perhaps to cure the malady of my first and best friend. "'I shall immediately depart for Dunkeld.' "'Thou bird of night,' replied Raymond, "'what an eclipse do you throw across my bright thoughts?' "'forcing me to call to mind that melancholy ruin, "'which stands in mental desolation, "'more irreparable than a fragment of a carved column "'in a weed-grown field. "'You dream that you can restore him? "'Dedalus never wound so inextricable an error round Minotaur, "'as madness has woven about his imprisoned reason. "'Nor you, nor any other Theseus, can thread the labyrinth, "'to which perhaps some unkind Eratony has the clue.' You allude to Everdeny's Iomy, but she is not in England. And were she, said Raymond, I would not advise her seeing him. Better to decay in absolute delirium, than to be a victim of the than to be a victim of the methodical unreason of ill-bestowed love. The long duration of malady has probably erased from his mind all vestige of her, and it were well that it should never again be imprinted. "'You will find him at Dunkeld. "'Gentle and tractable he wanders up the hills and through the wood, "'or sits listening beside the waterfall. "'You may see him, his hair stuck with wild flowers, "'his eyes full of untraceable meaning, "'his voice broken, his person wasted to a shadow. "'He plucks flowers and weeds, and weaves chaplets of them, "'or sails yellow leaves and bits of bark on the stream.' "'rejoicing in their safety or weeping at their wreck. "'The very memory half unmans me. "'By heaven! "'The first tears I have shed since boyhood "'rushed scalding into my eyes when I saw him. "'It needed not this last account "'to spur me on to visit him. "'I only doubted whether or not "'I should endeavour to see Idris again "'before I departed. "'This doubt was decided on the following day. "'Early in the morning Raymond came to me, "'Intelligence had arrived that Adrian was dangerously ill, 
and it appeared impossible that his failing strength should surmount the disorder. "'Tomorrow,' said Raymond, "'his mother and sister set out for Scotland to see him once again.' "'And I go to-day,' I cried. "'This very hour I will engage a sailing-balloon. "'I shall be there in forty-eight hours at furthest, "'perhaps in less if the wind is fair. "'Farewell, Raymond.' "'Be happy in having chosen the better part in life. "'This turn of fortune revives me. "'I feared madness, not sickness. "'I have a presentiment that Adrian will not die. "'Perhaps his illness is a crisis, and he may recover.' "'Everything favoured my journey. "'The balloon rose about half a mile from the earth, "'and with a favourable wind it hurried through the air, "'its feathered vans cleaving the unopposing atmosphere.' Notwithstanding the melancholy object of my journey, my spirits were exhilarated by reviving hope, by the swift motion of the airy pinnace, and the balmy visitation of the sunny air. The pilot hardly moved the plumed steerage, and the slender mechanism of the wings, wide unfurled, gave forth a murmuring noise, soothing to the sense. Plain and hill, stream and cornfield, were discernible below, while we, unimpeded, sped on swift and secure, as a wild swan in his spring-tide flight. The machine obeyed the slightest motion of the helm, and, the wind blowing steadily, there was no let or obstacle to our course. Such was the power of man over the elements, a power long sought and lately won, yet foretold in bygone time by the prince of poets whose verses I quoted much to the astonishment of my pilot, when I told him how many hundreds of years ago they had been written. O oh, human wit, thou canst invent much ill, thou searchest strange arts, who would think by skill? An heavy man like a light bird should stray, and through the empty heavens find a way. I alighted at Perth, and, though much fatigued by a constant exposure to the air for many hours, I would not rest. But, merely altering my mode of conveyance, I went by land instead of air to Dunkeld. The sun was rising as I entered the opening of the hills. After the revolution of ages, Burnham Hill was again covered with a young forest, while more aged pines, planted at the very commencement of the nineteenth century by the then Duke of Athol, gave solemnity and beauty to the scene. The rising sun first tinged the pine-tops, and my mind, rendered through my mountain education deeply susceptible to the graces of nature, and now on the eve of again beholding my beloved and perhaps dying friend, was strangely influenced by the sight of those distant beams. Surely they were ominous, and as such I regarded them good omens for Adrian, on whose life my happiness depended. Poor fellow! He lay stretched on a bed of sickness, his cheeks glowing with the hues of fever, his eyes half-closed, his breath irregular and difficult. Yet it was less painful to see him thus, than to find him fulfilling the animal functions uninterruptedly, his mind sick the while. I established myself at his bedside. I never quitted it day or night. Bitter task was it to behold his spirit waver between death and life, to see his warm cheek, and know that the very fire which burned too fiercely there was consuming the vital fuel, 
to hear his moaning voice, which might never again articulate words of love and wisdom, to witness the ineffectual motions of his limbs, soon to be wrapped in their mortal shroud. Such for three days and nights appeared the consummation which fate had decreed for my labours, and I became haggard and spectre-like, through anxiety and watching. At length his eyes unclosed faintly, yet with a look of returning life. He became pale and weak, but the rigidity of his features was softened by approaching convalescence. What a brimful cup of joyful agony it was, when his face first gleamed with a glance of recognition, when he pressed my hand, now more fevered than his own, and when he pronounced my name. No trace of his past insanity remained to dash my joy with sorrow. This same evening his mother and sister arrived. The Countess of Windsor was by nature full of energetic feeling, but she had very seldom in her life permitted the concentrated emotions of her heart to show themselves on her features. The studied immovability of her countenance, her slow equable manner, and soft but unmelodious voice, were a mask, hiding her fiery passions, and the impatience of her disposition. She did not in the least resemble either of her children. Her black and sparkling eye, lit up by pride, was totally unlike the blue lustre and frank benignant expression of either Adrian or Adris. There was something grand and majestic in her motions, but nothing persuasive, nothing amiable. Tall, thin, and straight, her face still handsome, her raven hair hardly tinged with grey, her forehead arched and beautiful, had not the eyebrows been somewhat scattered, it was impossible not to be struck by her, almost to fear her. Adris appeared to be the only being who could resist her mother, notwithstanding the extreme mildness of her character. But there was a fearlessness and frankness about her, which said that she would not enroach on another's liberty, but held her own sacred and unassailable. The Countess cast no look of kindness on my worn-out frame, though afterwards she thanked me coldly for my attentions. Not so Adris. Her first glance was for her brother. She took his hand, she kissed his eyelids, and hung over him with looks of compassion and love. Her eyes glistened with tears when she thanked me, and the grace of her expression was enhanced, not diminished, by the fervour which caused her almost to falter as she spoke. Her mother, all eyes and ears, soon interrupted us, and I saw that she wished to dismiss us quietly, as one whose services, now that his relatives had arrived, were of no use to her son. I was harassed and ill, resolved not to give up my post, yet doubting in what way I should assert it, when Adrian called me, and, clasping my hand, bade me not to leave him. His mother, apparently inattentive, at once understood what was meant, and seeing the hold we had upon her, yielded the point to us. The days that followed were full of pain to me, so that I sometimes regretted that I had not yielded at once to the haughty lady, who watched all my motions, and turned my beloved task of nursing my friend to a work of pain and irritation. Never did any woman appear so entirely made of mind as the Countess of Windsor. 
her passions had subdued her appetites, even her natural wants. She slept little and hardly ate at all. Her body was evidently considered by her as a mere machine, whose health was necessary for the accomplishment of her schemes, but whose senses formed no part of her enjoyment. There is something fearful in one who can thus conquer the animal part of our nature, if the victory be not the effect of consummate virtue. Nor was it without a mixture of this feeling that I beheld the figure of the countess awake when others slept, fasting when I, abstemious naturally, and rendered so by the fever that preyed on me, was forced to recruit myself with food. She resolved to prevent or diminish my opportunities of acquiring influence over her children, and circumvented my plans by a hard, quiet, stubborn resolution that seemed not to belong to flesh and blood. War was at last tacitly acknowledged between us. We had many pitched battles, during which no word was spoken, hardly a look was interchanged, but in which each resolved not to submit to the other. The countess had the advantage of position, so I was vanquished, though I would not yield. After the lapse of a few weeks, we left Dunkeld. Adris and her mother returned immediately to Windsor, while Adrian and I followed by slow journeys and frequent stoppages, occasioned by his continued weakness. As we traversed the various counties of fertile England, all wore an exhilarating appearance to my companion, who had been so long secluded by disease from the enjoyments of weather and scenery. We passed through busy towns and cultivated plains. The husbandmen were getting in their plenteous harvests, and the women and children, occupied by light rustic toils, formed groups of happy, healthful persons, the very sight of whom carried cheerfulness to the heart. One evening, quitting our inn, we strolled down a shady lane, then up a grassy slope, till we came to an eminence that commanded an extensive view of hill and dale, meandering rivers, dark woods, and shining villages. The sun was setting, and the clouds, straying like new-shorn sheep, through the vast fields of sky, received the golden colour of his parting beams. The distant uplands shone out, and the busy hum of evening came, harmonised by distance, on our ear. Adrian, who felt all the fresh spirit infused by returning health, clasped his hands in delight, and exclaimed with transport, O oh, happy earth, and happy inhabitants of earth! A stately palace has God built for you, O oh man, and worthy are you of your dwelling. Behold the verdant carpets spread at our feet, and the azure canopy above. The fields of earth which generate and nurture all things, and the track of heaven which contains and clasps all things, now at this evening hour, at the period of repose and refection, methinks all hearts breathe one hymn of love and thanksgiving, and we, like priests of old on the mountain tops, give a voice to their sentiment. Assuredly, a most benignant power built up the majestic fabric we inhabit, and framed the laws by which it endures. If mere existence, and not happiness, had been the final end of our being, what need are the profuse luxuries which we enjoy? Why should our dwelling-place be so lovely, and why should the instincts of nature minister pleasurable sensations? The very sustaining of our animal machine is made delightful. 
and our sustenance, the fruits of the field, is painted with transcendent hues, endured with grateful odours, and palatable to our taste. Why should this be, if he were not good? We need houses to protect us from the seasons, and behold the materials with which we are provided, the growth of trees with their adornment of leaves, while rocks of stone piled about the plains variegate the prospect with their pleasant irregularity. Nor are the outward objects alone the receptacles of the spirit of good. Look into the mind of men, where wisdom reigns enthroned, where imagination, the painter, sits, with his pencil dipped in hues lovelier than those of sunset, adorning familiar life with glowing tints. What a noble boon, worthy the giver, is the imagination. It takes from reality its leaden hue. It envelops all thought and sensation in a radiant veil, and with an hand of beauty beckons us from the sterile seas of life to our gardens and bowers and glades of bliss. And is not love a gift of the divinity? Love and her child hope, which can bestow wealth on poverty, strength on the weak, and happiness on the sorrowing. My lot has not been fortunate. I have consorted long with grief, entered the gloomy labyrinth of madness, and emerged, but half alive. Yet I thank God that I have lived. I thank God that I beheld his throne, the heavens and earth, his footstool. I am glad that I have seen the changes of his day, to behold the sun, fountain of light, and the gentle pilgrim moon, to have seen the fire-bearing flowers of the sky, and to the flowery stars of earth, to have witnessed the sowing and the harvest. I am glad that I have loved, and have experienced sympathetic joy and sorrow with my fellow-creatures. I am glad now to feel the current of thought flow through my mind, as the blood through the articulations of my frame. Mere existence is pleasure, and I thank God that I live. And all ye happy nurslings of Mother Earth, do ye not echo my words? Ye who are linked by the affectionate ties of nature, companions, friends, lovers, fathers, who toil with joy for their offspring, women, who, while gazing on the living forms of their children, forget the pains of maternity, children, who neither toil nor spin, but love and are loved. Oh, that death and sickness were banished from our earthly home, that hatred, tyranny, and fear could no longer make their lair in the human heart, that each man might find a brother in his fellow, and a nest of repose amid the wide plains of his inheritance, that the source of tears were dry, and that lips might no longer form expressions of sorrow. Sleeping thus under the beneficent eye of heaven, can evil visit thee, O earth, or grief cradle to their graves the luckless children? Whisper it not, let the demons hear and rejoice. The choice is with us, let us will it, and our habitation becomes a paradise, for the will of man is omnipotent, blunting the arrows of death, soothing the bed of disease, and wiping away the tears of agony. And what is each human being worth, if he did not put forth his strength to aid his fellow creatures? My soul is a fading spark, my nature frail as a spent wave, but I dedicate all of intellect and strength that remains to me to that one work, and take upon me the task, as far as I am able, of bestowing blessings on my fellow-men. His voice trembled, his eyes were cast up, his hands clasped, and his fragile person was bent, as it were, with excessive emotion. 
the spirit of life seemed to linger in his form, as a dying flame on an altar flickers on the embers of an accepted sacrifice. End of chapter 4a